Hello, listener, and welcome to another episode of AOC. In today's episode, we're discussing Celine Loops, the man who came down the attic stairs. It's another comic delving into the genre of horror, so it contains topics that may be challenging. Mental health is particularly on the forefront of this one. But hey, before we let you dive into the episode, two things. First off, in all of October, you can get your hands on a bunch of incredible comics over on Shortbox. Go to shortboxcomicsfair.com and have a look through the fantastic selection of works. Even Bailey Rosenland and Kyrie Lynch, makers of Rodesha and the Mountain Troll, has a new comic called Morana Until Death, so please check it out! Second off, we decided to add a new little segment at the beginning of every episode. A mood board, if you will. This is just a little suggestion from us to the listener how we think you can elevate your reading experience for each and every comic we discuss on the show. For The Man Who Came Down the Attic Stairs by Celine Loop, this is our mood board. Bring your sophisticated drink of choice, put on some early 1900s jazz, and light a candle. If you're lucky enough to live in a creaky old house, lean into the sound work and preferably read while dark. Let's get spooked! Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, a comic book artist who made the poor decision to have a hot curry before this podcast episode. Hi, I'm Joss Stone, and I decided to drink too little water, so that was also a decision before recording. A lot of us have experienced the pressure to just be quote-unquote normal, to perform inside these made-up perimeters of our social construct. When will you have children? Will you have children? Why don't you want children? Invasive questions and a horror story in it of itself. The Man Who Came Down the Attic Stairs is an intimate and heartbreaking story about a family coming undone, even when they follow social conventions. It's a tale about how even the supposedly most normal of us can struggle to meet these expectations. Have you ever worried that your life won't work out how you want? How your marriage won't work out how you want? Your family? Even your child? The Man Who Came Down the Attic Stairs takes these existential anxieties and manifests them in an intense sensory horror experience. From a thematic point of view, it's stuff that I've thought a lot about for a variety of reasons, but also I'm relatively unusual in that, you know, I'm nearly 40 and in a relationship that's lasted a very long time and we've decided not to have children. So everything that you said in that blurb hit home, those social expectations, those thoughts that everybody has and the questions everybody asks, all that kind of stuff. But also, this reading experience, the thing it reminded me most of is a comic book called Fish and Chocolate, which is written by my partner. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to put a pin in that and ask more about that. But have you ever personally felt the pressure of performing the, you know, heteronormative cycle of getting a child, getting a car, getting a dog, getting a house, all of that? But most of all, have you ever felt pressured to have children? Yeah, this is an interesting one, because I think I would be lying if I said I hadn't felt those pressures, but they also haven't come from very obvious places. You know, my parents aren't the kind of parents who are like, when are you going to have a child then? When is our grandchild coming? Or any of that kind of stuff. They've never done any of that. But I'm aware sort of like ambiently of what's expected of people and being in a relationship where we decided not to do any of that stuff. I mean, we, we have a house and a car, but we don't have a child. It means that we've had all those conversations and we've talked about all of those pressures and how they affect both of us. So yeah, it's very, very much been something that's been a part of my life. How about you? I was four years old when I told my parents, and they, they keep quoting this back to me to this day, I hate children and I never want them. 
Right. So you started early. (laughs) I very much did. I've just never gravitated towards children. I don't enjoy being with them. I don't enjoy interacting with them. I don't enjoy having them there with me. And I've always been that way. And since I've always been incredibly upfront about all of these things, people have also never pestered me, especially not my own parents, which I am eternally grateful for. I've never felt any kind of pressure. The very few times anyone have tried challenging me, I make it incredibly uncomfortable for them by saying stuff like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know my vagina was your business. I didn't know that I was your personal (laughs) birthing factory. That's excellent. But yeah, I guess we need to dial it back into this comic. If it wasn't obvious, the overarching theme of this is childbirth and having a child. The heart of the comic is this incredibly intense, grating experience of a baby screaming constantly and it's all over the pages it's all over the back of the book even in terms of the uh, graphic design and so on it's a really interesting framing and I I thought given how much we've discussed sound effects in previous episodes this would be a really interesting one to talk about yeah I think it's an excellent use of the soundscape I got stressed out while reading this I could hear the constant ah going on in my head for every page I turned and the child was present. It was really nicely done and and a combination of the absolutely desperate expressions from the mother in the story in combination with this constant, incredibly done sound effect where sometimes the screams of the baby, they're not added to a panel in the way that you'd expect. They actually look like they're painted on the walls and ceilings or they form part of the flow of the page. All of the way in which the sound effects were integrated was just if I wasn't stressed by reading it I was stopping going oh yeah oh I'm taking notes this is really nicely done how did you find taking notes for this one I found it a little challenging same I don't have many partly because it was so short but partly because I kept on interrupting myself in the first two pages to write things like oh I like that little panel transition then I realized actually I want to experience this without taking notes first and then I want to go back and take notes so I stopped taking them But then I didn't take many notes afterwards because I knew I'd be recording in a few hours, so. Yeah, similar experience to mine. The moment I opened, I I took notes page one where I was like, oh, this is exquisite. This is so beautiful, gorgeous composition, perfect line work. And then it occurred to me that this is really short. I want to experience the whole thing in one go, not take many or any notes and then flick back because it's relatively easy with this kind of length. But I found myself when I went back, I didn't really know what I had to say. Let's just dive in there because it's a short book. For listeners who haven't read it yet, it's effectively a horror about postpartum depression. There is a sort of a twist at the end that is relatively ambiguous, read one way, and is relatively straightforward, read another way, which I found interesting. So why don't we just dive into your overall impression of the story? I was invested from page one, where you see the couple being a couple together, and it was just so refreshingly beautiful to see how they interacted with one another. It was soft, and it was tender, and I was immediately invested in the two of them. And then, of course, since I knew this was a horror, I I went, "Mm, when is it gonna go downhill? I'm not ready for them to be unhappy. And then it very quickly goes downhill, or down the stairs, I should say. (laughs) What I'm really left with is that, funnily enough, I wish it was just a little bit longer, that it spent a little bit more building tension and atmosphere, because what is there is exquisite. I can't stress this enough. I thought 
it's a fantastic comic. I just felt it was short of perfect. But the fact that there were certain happenings, certain events that I wanted underlined a little bit more, not necessarily with clarity, because I like the ambiguity. I just missed a little bit more of me lingering and relishing and simmering in terror <laughs> instead of feeling constantly stressed out about this crying baby. Yeah, I think I, I had a similar experience. One of my notes is that I really wish, especially the last four or five pages, had been more like 10 to 20 pages, perhaps. It didn't feel rushed exactly, because you could take your time on the page if you wanted to. And this may just be a personal preference thing, because this comic to me has a very European feel. Oh my god, I wrote just the same! I wrote almost has that European comic feel to it. Yeah, yeah. That's often quite dense in terms of panel layouts, and you're expected to take your time on a page rather than approach it in a more manga way. You're flicking, but the space on the page gives you a sense of pacing. It felt like a sophisticated blend of those two approaches, but when it didn't quite land the balance, the experience was almost a little bit lurching. And that's not to say it, it's not beautifully made, because I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a, a fantastic comic. I use the word sophisticated deliberately a couple of times because it really felt like a sophisticated read. I felt like I was in the hands of a comic master here. Maybe this is just a personal project and it was less about the development and the storytelling and the editing and so on. So the author's note in the back says, Although this book deals with the theme of postpartum depression, it was conceived at a time where I was experiencing very intense emotions about motherhood. I was grappling with an all-consuming urge to start a family, while also suffering from extreme anxiety about motherhood and the possibility of regretting a choice I could never take back. Drawing this story was my way of exploring those fears in a safe way. It's a really interesting thing when you get to hear more specifically about what an author was working through when they were writing something. Was this more about telling the story or was it more about exploring personal fears and then the story came out of it as a sort of a happy accident? Yeah. Do you think those questions came in the way of your enjoyment? I don't think so, but they made me... Because obviously I finished the comic, I had the reaction I had, which was, oh wow, what an intense experience, and I'm really glad I read that comic. But something slightly didn't land at the end, and I couldn't put my finger on it. When you read something, and it's very plot-driven, and there will be a twist that makes sense with the plot, and then there will be a conclusion, maybe a really strong theme running throughout. And this book has all of those elements. Yet at the same time, it felt also quite freeform. And when I read all of those individual things, you know, the anxieties of the author that were being embedded in the book, it made sense then to me that the book felt like it was pulling in several different directions, none of which fully came together at the end. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but there was the fear of the husband, there was the fear of the child, there was the fear of not living the proper life, not living the life that you wanted, and then there was the twist which, if you read it in the most typical take-the-text-at-face-value way, is that the child who's been screaming all this time was actually stillborn and the mother's not been able to reconcile that and has postpartum psychosis. Finally, she leaves her trauma in a darkened room and walks away from it. And then there's a different reading, which is perhaps she killed her child. It left me with this sort of like, whoop, I've finished. Do you know what I mean? As you know, I'm a big junkie for horror. 
I really enjoy my spooky ookies. And there is a very common through line that I've always wondered why that is. That a lot of horror struggles with ending to stick the landing in a way. And I really wonder why that is. I wonder if it has to do with the buildup that you're constantly building this form of suspense. And then when it all resolves, it can quickly feel either unclear or a little anticlimactic. There is something about the structure balance of having a long walk uphill and then whoosh, down at the end. That's kind of what horror always feels like to me. You have the slow rise up and then you just jump over the edge and it's over. Yeah. And sometimes that experience feels a little uneven for me where I've spent in, in this specific matter not that long since it's a relatively short comic but you've spent time getting invested with a character or more only to have it fizzle out a little bit in the end the thing is i don't necessarily want the entire and then they lived happily ever after disney's summary bullshit i don't need that i just always struggle to really put my finger on why horror always tend to struggle with this situation to me maybe the heart is that sense of building tension and then letting tension go that you were talking about. This is an incredibly intense comic, and my experience with it was that I was utterly engrossed with this mother's experience and the intensity of this sensory experience of being overwhelmed with the noises around her and the screaming constantly. When the man came down from the attic stairs, as it happened in the book, that was chilling. I don't know about you, but I felt that that page was one of the most successful horror pages I've ever read, where you catch this really tiny glimpse in the absolute darkness of something that's not human, and then your husband walks down the stairs. Oof, that hit hard. That pulled me in even more, and then the sensory experience got more and more and more intense. And then there's the page where she's in the psychiatrist's office, and he says, you had a stillbirth, I think you have postpartum psychosis. And all of the air went out of the story at that moment for me. And I know it then became ambiguous afterwards. That was why I suggested maybe it could have done with an extra sort of 10 pages or so, just to build up that tension an extra little bit. I also wish it spent a little more time in the middle. See, this is where my confusion started upon revisiting it to start taking notes. The event with the titular, the man came down the attic stairs, happens before she even gives birth. So what happens is that she's on first floor, I assume. Her husband has gone up to the attic to put some boxes away or something. And then there's this cacophony of noise and she gets really panicked. She's worried about her husband, calls out for him, starts ascending the stairs. And then we see the monster, a glimpse of the monster that you referred to coming downstairs. She freezes up. We see it's just a husband. And then the stress of all of this made her water break. That's right, yeah. Okay, but she saw something prior to giving birth. There was something in the attic. Or was there? What's that all about? I think this is where I wanted a little more, not hand-holding, but a little more alluding to this monster, since we barely ever see that again, and it looks fucking dope. It looks like a horse skull split into four. It's so damn cool. You kind of get the feeling that this is a he got possessed by some evil entity in the attic. And I wanted to see more of that potential possession. Instead, it kind of felt like the baby got possessed because the baby never stops crying. 
even at one point she has sex with her husband post giving birth just because she wants to feel some semblance of normality in her household. And afterwards, she rests on his chest and noticed that the book he's been reading has been upside down this entire time. And I was like, oh my god, that's so unsettling and so unnerving. It's not her husband. Someone is wearing her husband's skin. And then it just like kind of never goes anywhere with that. And that's where I felt, hmm, I wish we got to see more of the home situation with this potential possession. Right, yeah. And I think this was what I was trying to get at with what I was saying earlier. The story's pulling me in two different directions, the baby and the husband. And they didn't quite gel together at any point. And I'm putting them together in my head, and I now realise thematically what was going on. It's a comic driven by anxiety, and her anxiety that her husband isn't the person that he used to be, that he's something different, something horrific, is because he's linked to this stillbirth, presumably, or he's linked to the child. And the monster is like a visual representation of that rather than a literal possession, or or that's how I read it afterwards anyway. But I feel like that only becomes readable because we sort of have the psychiatrist as the exposition dump of the story, where he quite literally mansplains to us, the reader, what happened, that she suffers from a diagnose, and that's why all of this happened. And of course you can read it as she's retelling the story to the shrink, And in that story, she saw a monster in the attic. And that just might be that a monster in her head claimed her husband. Because, of course, if their child was stillborn, he also probably grew very distant to her, I can imagine. At least he obviously got affected by this whole scenario. But perhaps my gripe is the fact that we kind of are given the explanation and then we're sort of expected to just accept it. Yeah, this is where that last page comes in, I think. You've got the only a few pages from the end where, rather matter-of-factly, like you said, he, he mansplains the diagnosis to her. Then we have a couple of pages where she goes back to her house and she doesn't accept the diagnosis. She's planning on running away with her child. Her child is screaming from the attic where she's been keeping it and sleeping herself as well. She goes up and as she reaches for the handle, it stops screaming and she starts to question herself. But we don't go with her into the room, which I thought was really powerful. And then we cut to outside of the door. The baby starts screaming again, and then it cuts off again, and she walks out without the baby. So we're left to ask ourselves, did she just accept her diagnosis in that moment and walk out of the room? Or did she literally kill the child and walk out of the room? I'm very curious where you get that interpretation from, that she killed her child, since the doctor has established that she's imagining the child. But her fear all all along has been that she will kill her child. If you personally don't accept the doctor's explanation at that point, you know, the doctor's not in their house. Her husband has told the doctor that there's no child. But if her husband really is a monster, then nothing he says can be trusted. As a reader, you're asked whether to trust her, trust the doctor and the husband. When we get to the scene where she accepts things, we're also not given the luxury of being given her personal perspective. We just see things happen from the outside. So I think there is a there is an ambiguity there. Yeah, I, I have to say this is the first time I firmly do not see it from that perspective at all. See, where I struggle with that explanation is that it's her husband who committed her to the psychiatrist. Why would he do that and potentially expose her to another reality or lie and then have her come back home and then potentially kill her child? 
if his entire shtick is that he is actually possessed by some evil entity and he wants the child for his own gain, something we never get a feeling over across this entire comic since he seems incredibly distant to both her and especially the child. He wants nothing to do with it, supposedly because it's not there, so he can't interact with it. But I really struggle seeing that as a logical or illogical conclusion to this story that he admits her for help and that help then turns her against her husband and damages a child that he wanted some bigger plan out of? It's not quite the interpretation that I meant. I mean, I admit that I think that the most obvious way to read this is just that the baby's never been there, especially because she says, yes, I want to go to the, the doctor's office when they leave, which seems to be like she suggests she's accepted the idea of what's happening, that her child is dead, and we see her finally fall asleep just before the comic ends. I agree, I think that reading is much more compelling. But I did wonder whilst I was reading it at this point, and I wondered because of a bunch of things that had been in the comic up to that point, maybe that wasn't intentional from the author, but it seems like if you wanted to provide a once-and-for-all answer, there would be a different way to frame this scene. I agree in one way, I just don't agree that it leaves open for the interpretation of the husband conning her out of this or something as similar to that. We've seen far too little of the husband in this entire comic to be able to read any kind of motive out of him, in my opinion. I honestly wish we saw more of the husband, but I guess if the story to take away here is that she imagined everything, then he would also give that story away way sooner by the fact that he doesn't have a baby to interact with. Oh, it's an interesting one, because... I wasn't actually trying to suggest that it was a specific motive for the husband. I'm not sure it's in, if there was, it was embedded. All I meant was that the husband told the doctor what had happened to the child, not her. As a reader, we've been with her the whole time. We've been seeing everything through her perspective. I guess, again, as a reader, my first instinct was like not to trust the doctor and not to trust what the husband had told the doctor because she's frightened of the husband, that's the source of the information. Does that make sense? I really understand where you're coming from. Maybe I misread you in the first place, and that's uh, super valid, and maybe I just got confused along the way. Like I said, it's really tricky, because by the end, we're kind of given the explanation for free. From that point on, I just accepted that she's an unreliable narrator. Yeah, I mean, that certainly could be the case as well. I think there's an interesting dynamic between the literally patriarchal authority figures telling her what her narrative is and the literally matriarchal perspective that we've taken all the way through the comic. And that's a really lovely tension, I think, this sort of sense that she's in this incredible, almost unreal environment when she's in the doctor's office. It's overwhelmingly opulent. One of the things that I've picked out in my notes is that I love how menacing the portrait behind the psychiatrist is, how piercing that gaze is. All the artistic stuff is mwah, chef's kiss. It, it really is the story structure that I'm personally struggling a little bit with, and that might be me thing. It might not even be to the fault of the comic. It might super be me. Hearing you talk about it, it also brings another thing to mind that with how this woman has been portrayed throughout the entire comic, which is constantly tired and erratic, it's already hard for me to trust her regardless of the male perspective of the comic. She doesn't seem that reliable from the get-go with how neurotic she is. 
And then you have these guys who I never trust them either, since we're kind of supposed to believe that the man is some literal beast. But they are also never doing anything heinous. The husband is distant, but the psychiatrist is just being a typical psychiatrist of that era. At least how we always see them portrayed. He's cool, and I don't mean cool as in he's a badass, he's cool as in cold and distant. And just says it matter-of-factly, this is how it is. He's never condescending to her. He's never berating. I never read him as cruel. And I never read the husband as cruel. Yeah. And since we've never been given these insights, I just do not trust her as a narrator regardless of the diagnosis or nah. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. It's one thing that I wanted to, to bring up, actually, is that the husband, before he comes down from the attic steps, seems lovely. I know what you mean about being invested in their romance because it really does seem, along with the house they're moving into and everything, it does seem so sort of typical ideal, but in a, oh, I like these people kind of way. I have a note, actually, that the way the husband is drawn reminds me a lot of Jiro Taniguchi sometimes. Oh, yeah, the art style, you mean? Specifically the shapes in his face and the length of his chin and that kind of stuff. I agree. He also just looks kind. I enjoy that he looks like a gentle person. Yes, absolutely. Likewise, I think you're right about the Doctor. There was a particular line that came from the Doctor that was incredibly sympathetic. He says, No, you are not a monster, Emma. Only an exhausted woman driven to the point of desperation and crying out for help. Regardless of whether his diagnosis was correct, that seemed like a sympathetic, understanding thing to say to somebody that could validate you and your sense of yourself and your experience. Another detail that stuck out to me where I went, can we trust a shrink? He hasn't taken a single note. He's just scribbled all over his pad. Oh, yes. What is that about? Again, I'm guessing it's just he's not really that engaged. He's perhaps a bit bored by her in some way or another. But that's also so weird because he is, like you said, surprisingly sympathetic. It's interesting that that comes immediately before the diagnosis as well, because I hadn't, I hadn't spotted that that was probably partially influencing my lack of trust with him at that point, because I was like, oh, wow, he's really not paying attention. And then he delivers a diagnosis. It's really fascinating how the story plays with your sense of trust in the characters all the way through. This is definitely a story that benefits from being discussed, from getting other perspectives, and also from airing your own experience. Since how I started this entire conversation with you, even before we started recording, I tried to be as vague as possible and said, I'm very curious about how today's gonna go. I really struggled putting my feelings both on paper and into words about this one. I really liked it. I don't want to sound like I'm sitting here and going like, this was pee-pee-poo-poo, because it, it was excellent. <laughs> it's really yeah. good, but it's challenging, and it's difficult, and it's heavy, and it's definitely something you have to be in the right headspace to even perceive. And I think you have to be the right kind of person to get everything that you're supposed to get away from this story. And not just be like, why am I reading panels where a baby is shitting itself? And why am I seeing this neurotic woman just being hysterical? And so like, I can super see that there's people who this comic will just completely crash with them as people. And I think possibly like the further you are away from these experiences, the harder it might be to appreciate them inside the comic. And we're an unusual audience in that respect because we're both people who've chosen not to have children. We've deliberately avoided these anxieties. Ooh, this must be a difficult read for people who want children and for any reason can't have them. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. From that perspective, I, I think I was very sort of mentally generous with the central character. I, I never thought of her as, as being hysterical, for example, because I was just like, my God, I'd probably have flipped a lid worse than this if I was in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when I said that she acts this way, I don't mean that as a criticism of her as a character. It's more that she even says herself that she's unreliable. She attacked a woman out in open, and she's worried about killing her own child. So when I assign her as being hysterical, it's not me going like, oh my God, honey, you just got to toughen the fuck up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not what I mean. It's just a very literal assessment of how she reads as a character. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that the word, are you familiar with the, like, the origins of the word hysteria and hysterical? Yeah, isn't it like uh, women's sexual frustration? Yeah, it was a diagnosis for women who had this kind of experience, as far as I can tell, because they were at home, alone, with working husbands, a house to manage, a baby to look after, no formal social recognition for what they were doing in terms of the structure of the patriarchy around them. And then they would go to the doctor and the doctor would tell them that they were hysterical and it was actually a diagnosis. I love that the diagnosis is just like, yeah, you're sexually frustrated. And me seeing her over here like, yeah, there wasn't a single fucking cis man back then who knew about the clitoris. What the fuck do you expect, my brother in Christ? (laughs) Oh, dear. It's amazing how that stuff is still embedded in our culture, though. It's hard to exercise those things from our culture. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about this book is that it really brought them to the fore in a way that I don't see in books very often. It was one of the things I mentioned at the beginning that my partner Kate wrote a book called Fish and Chocolate, which was a collection of three short stories all about motherhood. And specifically, they dealt with postpartum depression as well. That book was picked up by a publisher. It was They did a reasonable job publishing it. Perhaps there was no budget for, for for marketing it, but it just didn't do very well because there wasn't an audience back then. This was nearly at least a decade. And, you know, it was a sophisticated horror for older women. That just wasn't people who read comics that were marketed to back then. It's good to see this kind of thing around anyway. And I think perhaps this probably wasn't also the most popular comic either. As you know, I really struggle getting my hands on this comic. It was a fucking journey. I ordered it from one page, never heard from them again. Then I was like, hey, where's the thing that I ordered? And they went, oh, uh, you should have gotten an email saying that we didn't have that in stock. Sorry, never got that email, by the way. Then I ordered from a second page. The day after, it's cancelled and I get my money back. And they're like, we don't run that book anymore. So in the end, I had to buy it from American Amazon and just pray that it showed up before we recorded this episode, which it did. It showed up in time, obviously. It's just not available. <laughs> yeah, and that suggests that it's either out of print or in limited stock. I mean, the reason why I mention it is just that it's a, it's a shame that there's not a market for this kind of thing. And I'm making huge assumptions here. It could be that it's sold really well and is just difficult to get hold of because it's between print runs, but I doubt it. Yeah, this kind of harkens back to something we have discussed several times in the past. That is, our age group 
and beyond just aren't marketed towards. They don't think that we read comics, which is one of the big reasons why I even wanted to make this podcast. It's like, hey, hi, it's me, mid-30s, and you, hi, hey, on my way to 40s. We love comics. We love making them. We love distributing them. We love reading them. We love talking about them. We love other people doing all of those things with them too. And again and again and again, I'm kind of made, and I I sound like I'm making this a huge problem, but I'm, I'm just going to sit on my horse and do so for a little bit. So ride with me if you will. We're made to suffer these fucking teenage stories over and over and uh. over again. If I have to pick up one more manga when it says, Meepity boo is in high school and she is stuck with all the boys. Oh my God. I'm just like, just shoot me in the head. Just fucking <laughs> drop me in the river. Leave me with the fish. I am done. I don't want this. Yeah. Give me women with postpartum depression. Give me people who suffer IBS. I don't fucking care. Just give me the real stories that I can fucking relate to in one way or another. Even if it's as simple as we are in the same fucking age bracket. I don't want to listen to teens where there's biggest fucking issues, lack of communication. I'm so over it. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel and, and working in a medium that's often seen as a sort of a, a kid's or a young adult's medium, it gets a bit old sometimes. And that, that's why I find stuff like this an absolute breath of fresh air. Like my first impression of it was instant feeling hyphen mature exclamation mark. Even when I worry that the takeaway for listeners after today episode is that I'm just this bitter bitch, which, you know, fair, that's probably true. I am so grateful that this exists. I want to take Celine Loop and heighten her on the chair and be like, here's our queen. She has delivered the kind of stuff <laughs> that I'm asking for day after day, even if both the theme and some of the story structure isn't necessarily for me on a spiritual creative level. I am still so grateful that it exists. We talked about this before the podcast a little bit. I wondered whether maybe you had a slightly lighter version of what I had with The Prince and the Dressmaker. Maybe? I don't know, because I had a similar experience with this that you did. It's very niche when it's the right time to pick it up. And you kind of can't plan for that when you have to record a podcast. Then you kind of just have to go. And this is something especially you have touched upon a lot in the past, is that it's all about the mood you bring to it. And I was slightly sick when I read this. I was under the weather. I was definitely not in the right headspace. But I also knew that going in that I wouldn't be primed I wasn't in peak condition, so I was definitely way more gentle and patient than I would have been before we started this, for example, and I was much less aware of the fact that I need to be in a certain state of mind to experience something. We're often encouraged by hot takes on social media, by YouTube essays, by people who act like they know exactly what they're talking about all of the time, to treat our relationship with media as a sort of a critical digest where we have to have an opinion you know we have to be correct about what we read and then we have to have the take that matters when we come out of it i would always encourage everybody to think of themselves as changeable to think of their relationship to media as changeable even to the same story multiple times I think that accepting that about yourself and accepting that about media is a really healthy, realistic way of seeing the world and adjusting your expectations and getting more out of the world as well and out of the stories that you read. Basically that your first 
meeting with something isn't the end all be all. You are allowed to grow and change opinions and you are allowed to even acknowledge the things that we just pointed out that maybe today just wasn't the right day to read this sort of thing. Maybe tomorrow is and you're always allowed to go back and reread something. I mean, at least for us, we own most of these comics and some of them are second and third and fifth reads. My giant cop-out with this comic is that I could probably say something complimentary about every panel. Not once was I lost in terms of panel direction. If I ever felt a little left in the dark, no pun intended, it was because of the story structure itself, where I wasn't quite sure what my takeaway was supposed to be. But in purely artistic speaking of rendering the panels, probably one of the most beautiful comics I've read this year. Oh yeah, absolutely. Fully agreed. This comic really is like a fine wine. Some days you're hella in the mood for that and it hits just a spot and you feel elevated and in touch with some part of yourself that you normally lay dormant. And then sometimes you drink wine and you just get a headache. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really, really good way of putting it. It really is a very particular reading experience, isn't it? Maybe you're savoring that and you're like, oh, yes, oh, the the notes, the complexity. Maybe it's just the alcohol isn't right for you right now. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, oh, I gotta have some aspirin and lay down. For the next episode, we are doing Emily Carroll's A Guest in the House. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to this one. It literally thumped ominously through my doorstep earlier today. I also think it's the freshest read that we're doing so far. I'm very excited. Yeah, can't wait for it. All right. Thank you so much for this talk. Yeah. See you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. A lot of us has... Off to a great start. To perform inside the made-up perimeters. Oh my god. Blah, 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 blah. I'm doing that over. I can't, suddenly can't read my own text. Even though I did clean right in. Next week? Or sorry, not next week. Next time. You're giving me the curse. Have you ever watched... We are having a day. <laughs> 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 <laughs>